Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. If I haven't met you, my name is Brendan. I am the Young Adults Coordinator with Crosspoint, and just a welcome to those people here in the building those online and those in the bonus room. But I want to start by asking us a question. Where do you find courage in times of pressure? So one thing that I do for fun is I go to school. (laughs) I'm taking my master's at Regent College out of Vancouver, and I'm doing it by distance. But it's interesting how the class and the format works, is that the majority of the students are there in person, and then there's a few of us that, that come in through Zoom online. So for me online, what I can see is I can see where the, the teacher stands up front. Uh, and then also I can see all the other students that are online. But what I can't see is the rest of the class there in person. So we have a class discussion on this book that we're reading. And there's a student up at the front of the class. And he asks the question, how many of you agree with what the author says on objective moral values. And I started to think about it, and I was like, I read the book, I agree with that. And then I started to look at the faces of people online, no one else raised their hand. And now I start to doubt a little bit, did I misread it? Am I wrong? Are they just scared like me and don't raise their hands? And so I bravely responded by waiting to the very last possible second, raising my hand just to the height of my head, so I could almost scratch my head. And in that moment, uh, the student leading the class discussion, he said, oh, this is very interesting. He says, all the students here in, in person raised their hand and said they agreed with this, but everyone online didn't. And in that moment, it struck me. Through technology, I was cut off from the presence of others and could not see all the other people that actually had the same values and beliefs that I did. And over these past 18 months with uh, COVID, we've feel this intense cultural pressure. But we've also been kind of removed from the presence of one another, which has been necessary at times and good, and we're working through that. But we recognize as you get removed from the presence of others, it can create a level of mistrust uh, and fear towards others. And so where have you experienced pressure to go against what you know is right? There's the obvious hot-button issues around COVID, uh, around social justice. But often this cultural pressure that we feel is experienced on a far more subtle level. Maybe it's that slow temptation to kind of excommunicate that friend or family member that doesn't hold the same beliefs that you do. Or maybe you're with a bunch of other coworkers and they start gossiping about someone else, and it's just way easier to join in and bash them than it is to stand up for them. Or maybe you feel like God is calling you to be generous with your money. But you think, you know, this has been a tough year, I want to hold on to it just a little bit longer. When it comes to the Christmas story, someone that experienced an immense amount of cultural pressure was Joseph. Let's just put ourselves in his shoes. You're a hard-working craftsman. You have your whole life ahead of you. You've just got engaged. Life is looking good. 
And then you find out that your fiance is pregnant and you know you are not the father. <laughs> and you could just imagine how his life has changed and the conversation he would have had with Mary. How did this happen? The Holy Spirit? That's, that's a new one for me. <laughs> but he would have fe- uh, felt this intense cultural pressure to divorce her, protect his honor, hold on to his, a higher moral standard. And it's in this space of intense cultural pressure that we see the angel come and speak a message of hope. Emmanuel, God with us. So where do we find courage in times of pressure? And from our text, as we begin to walk through, you can open up to Matthew uh, chapter 1, verses 18, and we'll start to walk through. But we, what we'll come to find is that courage is received through presence. We experience the pressure of culture on us, which points us to the need for the power of presence, especially God's presence. And from that position, we can receive a posture of courage. So beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18, we're going to look at the experience of the pressure of culture. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And so in this time, we see that Mary and Joseph are betrothed, which is similar to being engaged, but it's almost a little bit more stronger of a commitment than we have in our current day. They wouldn't have consummated the marriage at this point. They wouldn't have lived together, but in every other respects would have been considered married There would have been a bride price that was paid, which actually reminds me of when I, when JC and I got engaged. I had went to go meet her parents, and I was going to ask them uh, for JC's hand in in marriage. And I remember going there, sitting with them, and telling them this whole spiel about how much I love JC, want to spend the rest of my life with JC, how much I you want to cherish her and protect her and care for her and ask for their permission. And then I just remember just sitting there in that just moment of tension, waiting for their response. Now, my father-in-law has a really good sense of humor, and he said that will be three goats, a cow, and a chicken. (laughs) (laughs) So the ironic thing was on our wedding day, I had gone before, bought three cows, a goat, and a chicken from the dollar store, little toys, and I gave it to him. Here's the bride price. (laughs) But there would have been an exchange of a bride price. There would have been a commitment with that. And as you can imagine, the idea of a virgin birth is no less believable in that time than it is now. And Joseph uh, would have been quite upset. In fact, this would have been considered adultery. And in Deuteronomy, it talks about in chapter 22, that that was actually punishable by stoning to death. In the New Testament, it was a little bit different. The death penalty wasn't quite Uh, handed out in the same way. Uh, But he would have been kind of required to expose her publicly, to protect his honor, to push the shame not on himself but onto her. 
And so what do we learn about Joseph? Joseph was a good man. He was faithful to the law. He desired to do what was right, but he also was compassionate. And so he thought, you know, I'm going to divorce her quietly in front of two or three witnesses to prevent the same amount of shame to fall on her. And so at this point, it seems like Joseph doesn't believe Mary. And if that's the case, from his perspective, it would make sense that he would, he would approach this idea of divorce because he was on the higher moral ground and he could protect his own honor. And he should do that according to the law. But let's say, for example, he decided that he believed Mary, that she did not cheat on him, that she was uh, pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Well, if he would have taken her as his wife, he would have felt the intense cultural pressure. Uh, at one point, it would look like that he was the father from outsiders, that they had got pregnant outside of marriage, and that would have reflected very shamefully on him. Or he would admit that he wasn't the father and that he married her anyways, showing that he might be controlled by his emotions or lust or desire for her and enter into a marriage which this culture would have considered shameful. And so Joseph faced intense cultural pressure, which produced a fear and moved him away from doing what was ultimately good. And now when we, in our lives, when we experience cultural pressure, it can push us away from doing what is ultimately good. It can even appear like we're doing the right thing when we know it's not necessarily our desire. And we move towards a quick fix to get out of that pressure of cultural expectations. And so there's an uh, author, his name is Edwin Freeman. He's a Jewish rabbi. He's a family therapist. He's a business consultant. Lots of experience. And so he wrote this really crucial book on leadership called Failure of Nerve. And it's how to be a non-anxious leader in a culture of anxiety and quick fix. And so what he says from his experience in these different realms, when we experience someone else coming at us with anxiety and pressure, whether that's a person, whether it's a family structure, whether that's cultural values at large, we often respond in two different ways. Either we flee from this, trying to get away, and we emotionally retreat to our own moral high ground to try and justify and defend ourselves. But at the same time, we kind of dehumanize others to emotionally turn ourselves away from them. The other option that people often do is to fuse. So someone comes at you with anxiety and we fuse to their anxiety and pressure. And we take that on, it becomes our own anxiety and pressure. And we do this in order to, to gain the approval of others. But neither of these are very helpful in providing a way forward. And these actually feel like the, the options available for Joseph. And so what Friedman actually advocates is for leaders to stand up and to be non-anxious presence. When it, cultural pressures come against them, when someone who's chronically anxious comes against them, is to actually stand and be present to not flee and become emotionally distant, but also not to fuse to their anxiety and pressure. And so this points us to the need for the power of presence. We'll pick up in verse 20. This is this. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Joseph is under this space of cultural pressure, and it's in this that the angel comes to him and says two things. First, the angel reminded Joseph of who he was. He says, you are a son of David that you are actually from the lineage of the great king in Israel, that the Messiah is going to come from your lineage to rescue your people, and so be reminded of who you are. Second, he tells them not to fear. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. That when we look at the Christmas story, we often see angels are coming to different people, giving these messages. And when an angel comes usually the first thing that they say is, do not fear. Obviously, when a, if you were to encounter a spiritual being, there'd be a level of, of fear. <laughs> but I believe their call not to fear is actually deeper than that. It's speaking to the very hearts of the people. That these Jewish people are under the oppression of the Roman Empire. There would have been a level of cultural fear that they would have experienced. And here is this angel coming with a message of hope and a call not to fear. I don't know where you are today, but I believe this is a call for us as well. When we look at the media and the messaging, it's designed to stir up fear and anxiety. And many of us can feel like we're trying to meet that standard of that and never quite reaching it. And here's that call of reminding you of who you are. For those that are in Christ Jesus, you are son or daughter of the Most High King that you've been called out of darkness into light, that Romans 8, 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been bought, you've been brought into a covenant family. You have an incredible identity. You've been given new life. And there's also the call not to fear because you are part of a message of hope. In a sea of narratives driven by fear and despair, the gospel of hope cuts through and shines light to our broken hearts. And so let's examine this message of hope that the angel speaks to uh, to Joseph, but also to us. Now, as we examine this message of hope, let me ask you a question. How do you view God? When we look at faith, there's this confessional faith which is what we say we believe, but there's also a functional faith, a subconscious faith, a faith that we actually live out in our everyday life. And so how do you, how do you view God? Is God a heavenly being that has spun the world into existence and then kind of off in heaven, distant from us? And it's up to you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, to be a good person, and hopefully in the end, you'll end up in the right place. Or maybe God is like that distant friend that just wants you to be happy. And so it's really just about, I want to do whatever makes me feel good, and and God's going to approve of that. Or maybe we view God as a spiritual slot machine. We kind of lift up our prayers, pull the lever, hope he strikes us rich. 
Or maybe you're here today just exploring Christianity, and you're not even convinced that God exists. But if he does, you think he probably wants nothing to do with me or my everyday life. And so the way that we view God impacts the way we respond to culture and pressure. And so what does this text teach us about Jesus and God and his mission? Well, we look at what the angel says. He tells Joseph to call the son Jesus. And he says this because he will save his people from their sins. So the name Jesus itself is actually significant. It comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, which we see in the Old Testament, which means Yahweh saves. We talked about the Jewish people under the oppression of the Roman Empire, and they're waiting for a Messiah, someone to come to rescue them from oppression. And here is this child named Jesus, the Savior coming to rescue them from their oppressors, but he's going to rescue them in a way that they will not expect. Next, as we read, uh, verse 22, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And so this is spoken to fulfill prophecy, which came from Isaiah 7, 14. And in this context, this prophecy comes to King Ahaz. And he's about to be taken out by the Assyrians. And then later, the Babylonians will come and take them into exile and destroy the temple. And the people of God will be taken away from the presence of God. And it's into this that we see this prophecy, that this message of a child born of a virgin coming and being called Emmanuel, God with us. That God's desire is for his presence to be with his people. In fact, this is something you see throughout the entire uh, scriptures. You look at the Garden of Eden where God is with his people. He's with Adam and Eve, walking with them. And then they rebel. And so what happens? That sin can't be in the presence of God. So they're expelled from his presence. But God's desire, again, is to be with his people. And so we see in the Old Testament with Israel that God first establishes the tabernacle and then more solid, the temple. And the idea is that his presence can dwell with his people. And so there's a level of holiness, and they have to approach that. They can't just enter kind of willy-nilly into God's presence, but there's this, you know, there's an intensity of his presence, but it's designed to be with his people. And then again, Israel follows the same pattern as Adam and Eve, and they rebel, and they're taken into exile away from God's presence. And then this is the incredible part of the Christmas story, of the incarnation, that God actually takes on flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This idea of dwell among us, it's literally the word to to tabernacle among us, to pitch a tent among us, that God's presence actually takes on flesh and comes into the world. And then what we see is that Jesus actually draws people to himself as he's a representation of God's presence in the world, drawing a community around him. And then he calls that community to be people that takes the presence of God out into the world. At the very end of Matthew, it's interesting, Matthew starts here with the call of Emmanuel, God with us, and it ends with 
the Great Commission. And in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says to his disciples, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here's the, the, the kicker. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That Jesus calls them to, be go, to go out and says, I'm with you. And so how does this happen? Well, Jesus ascends to the Father. He says, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And then we see on Pentecost that his disciples are there and his spirit falls and the presence of God fills the hearts of his people, of his church. And so for those of us that are part of Jesus' church, we're actually mobile temples where God's presence is within us and we actually go out into the world to share that presence. And so the final end of the story in Revelation where we have the, the new heavens, the new earth coming down and God's presence becomes fully revealed with his people. This is the mission that we are called into, a mission of spreading God's presence. Author Richard Mark Martin Atchard, in his book, Light to the Nations, he talks about evangelization this way. He says, the evangelization of the world is not primarily a matter of words or deeds. It's a matter of presence, the presence of the people of God in the midst of mankind or humanity and the presence of God in the midst of his people. We are called to spread God's presence to the world as God's presence has come towards us. And so what do we learn about God through Jesus? That God loves his people, desires to be with them, and that because of sin and brokenness, there's a separation from God. But God doesn't leave us that way. He takes on flesh. He moves into the neighborhood, and he rescues us from that so that he can be with his people. So for myself, growing up as a little kid, if you talk to my parents, they would tell you, I had a great fear of a lot of things. I had a fear of dogs. I had a fear of cats. I'm redheaded, so I had a fear of the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, on one sunny day, that all changed. My family, we went to, it's called Knott's Berry Farm in California, a theme park. And obviously, if I'm scared of everything, I'd be scared of roller coasters. And so we come up to this roller coaster, and it's called Montezuma's Revenge. And to my horror, I'm just tall enough to ride this ride. And so my, my family is pumped. They're like, all right, let's do this. Come on, let's go. And so the whole time I'm walking through this lineup, I'm planning my escape. I'm like, how do I get out of this? Like, I, I'm not doing this. And so I notice that, as you can see in the picture, when you go to a roller coaster, you have the platform that you come in on, there's a roller coaster car, and then the other side is the exit platform. So I had this great idea. I was going to come in, and then I was just going to run right through, <laughs> right into the exit, and my family's not going to chase me at that point. And so I had this plan, and I, I was like, I'm getting out of this. And so when I walked through, I had one foot on the exit platform. I could see my destiny ahead of me, and all of a sudden, I felt a hand grab my shirt. My dad grabbed me, pulled me down, and then slammed the latch down, and it locked. And my face just went white. And then the, the young teenage kid that was in charge of the ride came by and he looked at me. He's like, is that guy okay? And I said, oh yeah, he's good. Let's do this. Start the ride. So I'm just holding there, gripping, like closing my eyes. I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. And so we go off the roller coaster, it shoots off, and basically just one little loopy loop and you come back. 
But I remember coming back and then opening up my eyes and being like, actually, that wasn't that bad. <laughs> Let's do that again. <laughs> and for the rest of the day, I wrote it like two or three more times. And that became a turning point in my life. Every time I faced something that was fearful, I said, if I can conquer Montezuma's revenge, this is not that bad. And so I share that story because I think it really helps illustrate the identity of Jesus that we see here. Jesus is a savior who rescues people from their sin, but he's also Emmanuel, God with us. In this story, I was run by my sin, or not sin necessarily, but fear. And so my, in the story, my dad, he actually grabs me and pulls me out of that fear that had captured me. And he puts me into the seat, and we go off this roller coaster. But he was not distant. My dad was in the seat right next to me. He was with me. So he pulls me from my fear, but he was also with me the whole time. So again, when we look at how we view God, it impacts the way that we approach culture. If God is just some distant moral judge, it becomes up to us to pull ourselves out of our brokenness, to work our way up to God. But if God is just some all-loving being that doesn't really care, it, we don't need to really worry about cultural pressure. We just give into it. We just do what's easy. But neither of those gods would have bothered with Christmas. Timothy Keller summarizes it this way. He says, a God who is only holy would not have come down to us in Jesus Christ. He would have simply demanded that we pull ourselves together, that we be moral and holy enough to merit a relationship with him. A deity that was all-accepting God of love would not have needed to come to earth either. This God of the modern imagination would have just overlooked sin and evil and embraced us. Neither the God of moralism nor the God of relativism would have bothered with Christmas. As we experience the pressure of culture, we need the power of presence of God with us. And from that place, we can respond not by fusing or fleeing, but respond in what we see through Jesus, full of grace and full of truth. And it's from this place that we receive a posture of courage. So picking back up in verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from, uh, from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not. She had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And so what we see is that we receive a posture of courage. And where do we receive that courage? We receive that courage in two ways. We receive that courage to honor God privately, where we do not receive credit publicly. We look at Joseph, he took Mary as his wife, but he did not consummate the marriage until Jesus was born. And so he honored God privately, but he would not have received that credit publicly. When we look at cultural pressure, it's easy to, to follow that when we receive public praise. It's easy to post a picture on Instagram supporting some sort of cause. It's a lot harder to have God change our heart in the way that we approach other people. And so what does it look like to follow Jesus when you don't get credit for it? When no one is watching, what does your relationship with Jesus look like? How do you follow him? 
And secondly, we see that we receive courage to give up being the hero of our own story to participate in a greater story. Joseph, it was his right as the father to name the child, something very important in this culture. But he gave up that right to name the child after what God had told him through the angel. And as we kind of begin to come to a close, I'm sure some of you have started to think, isn't this a sermon about Joseph? We've talked a lot about God, a lot about Jesus, a lot about culture, and we've kind of talked a little bit about Joseph. But that was done very intentionally. Because when you look at a movie or a book or a story, what is the role of a supporting character? It's not to take center stage, but actually to bolster up the main character. And we see within Joseph's life, this becomes evident. In the Gospels, Joseph is only mentioned in a handful of stories. In the birth narrative, one story in the early life of Jesus, and he actually isn't really given any, uh, any lines. He's a supporting cast. But by the time of Jesus' ministry, Joseph is absent. You'll hear about him. Some scholars had kind of concluded that he probably had passed away at this point. Um, and so what we see is that when you look at Joseph in the Gospels, his name is most often used as reference to father of Jesus. Joseph is not the hero of his own story. He's a footnote in a greater story. And so when we experience the presence of God, it reminds us that our lives are not about us. That actually we're called to lay down our life. It's not about fulfilling us, but actually about pointing towards a greater story, a greater hero. And we see this is why cultural pressure is so crushing. Because we try to make ourselves the hero of the story. We try to meet these standards. We try to rescue ourselves from this pressure that's coming at us, of this idea of meeting the standard of others, winning a culture war, and we realize we're not a very good hero. We actually need something outside of ourselves to draw us out of our brokenness and our fear. And for you, if you're sitting here today and maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, there's an invitation from God. God is not distance off waiting for you to get your life together, but he says, I've actually come into the mess of your life and realize that you can't rescue or redeem yourself but Jesus says, if you repent, if you turn from that fear and that brokenness and turn towards God, that he'll embrace you, that he'll rescue you, that he'll give you new life to walk in. That God is not some sort of distant, absent father, but he was close and desires for you to be with him. So where do we find courage under pressure? We find courage in presence. Just before COVID, I remember I actually took a little bit of time. I was praying and asking God, you know, what do you want me to focus on this next year? What do you want me to revolve my life around? And just as I listened and tried to be open to what God was saying, I felt like God was directing me towards two things. He says, I want you to learn to be present with me and present with others. And then COVID hit, <laughs> and that got a little bit more challenging but for me, I feel that's still my heart. And as we conclude, I just want to encourage you, where are you being present to God 
present to others. You know, as we wake up in the morning, there's such an easy temptation to look towards the news or these other things which are driven towards narratives of fear. But how are you being present to the hope of God? It's very easy to push away other people that don't think the same way that you do, to just become emotionally distant, protect yourself. But what does it look like to be present to someone else that has very different views than you? God has called us to be spread his presence. That if we receive that presence from him, we get to people that share that presence out into the world. And as we conclude, I just want to invite us to participate in a practice together. I encourage you to maybe just take a moment, close your eyes, and to open your hands in front of you. And this is just an idea of a posture of openness, that as we realize we come often close-handed, feeling pressure, and God is desiring us to be open to him. And so just as a position of openness towards him, I just want to take a moment and just ask God, God, where do you want me to be present to you? Where do you want me to be present to others? Father, we come before you. At times we feel like we can be carrying the weight of the world, the pressure on our shoulders. We realize that you have not designed us to carry that. And so we want to come before you, open-handed, as a people that desire to be in your presence. And we thank you that you are not a distant God, but you actually desire to be close, that you've called us out of brokenness, you've called us to new life. And so can you help us be a people that goes into our world to share your presence. We love you, Lord. We praise you and we thank you. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.